0: You can turn over to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3 this morning. You have an outline in your folder that we'll be going through. Hopefully making it through the outline this week. We've been uh, looking at Romans chapter 3 and up to this point in Romans we've been, been talking about sin and sin and more sin and how unrighteous we are and how sinful we are and finally Paul gets to the point where he gives us uh, some good news and uh, we see that in Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although although the law and the prophets here witness to bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus I just want to remind you, section 1 of, he, of Romans told us that we needed a righteousness that we didn't possess, and now we kind of get into section 2 here in Romans chapter 3, and we see that we can not just be under sin, but we actually have salvation available to us through a righteousness, not that can be earned, but can be received through Christ. And... uh We've been asking the question, how can man be right with God? If we're so much in sin and we're so um, unworthy and we're totally depraved in every way, how could we ever have any kind of relationship with a God who is holy in every way? How can we be right with God? And that's what we've been looking at, the need of salvation and the way to salvation. Last week, we mentioned, got to kind of get into a little theological uh, uh, Teaching, and we dealt with the idea of can you come to Jesus just as your Savior and not your Lord? And there's good people on both sides of this issue, but we believe as a church that um, the true elements of our salvation are repentance, confession, submission to the Lordship of Christ in our life. That doesn't mean that we're adding works to salvation. Because we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we went into depth last week, and we believe that repentance, confession, and submitting to the Lordship of Christ are intrinsic in the salvation experience. They're part of that transformation that takes place. Um, So sanctification, righteous manifestation of that sanctification, godly behavior, holy activity is something that manifests itself in the life of a genuine believer. And we talked about there's a, the churches are filled with people that come to church on Sunday and pretty much live like the devil the rest of the six days and say that, well, because they put their faith in Christ, they're good to go. And I think that they're under a delusion I think if God saves somebody, He's going to transform them. He's going to make them a new person in Christ, the Bible tells us. Old things will pass away. Behold, all things become new, including our desires. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we never sin again. That's not what I'm saying. But there should be a genuine manifestation of holiness and righteousness in the life of the believer. Yeah, we fall sometimes, sometimes daily. That's why the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So to answer the question, how can a man be made right with God? It's given to us here in this passage. We understand that we're all sinners. We all fall short of God's glory. We have read that over and over and over again. And so there's this divine dilemma here. God is a God of love, and therefore he wants to forgive sinners, but he's also a God of holiness. He's a God of justice. He can't just turn his blind eye the other way. How could God love sinners and yet not overlook their sins? How could God be true to himself by forgiving sinners, but not overlooking the sin that they committed. Last week, we looked at God's righteousness kind of an introductory way, and we said that God's righteousness is different than any other kind of righteousness because of its source. First of all, it tells us right here in the text that it comes from God. It doesn't come from ourself. And then it's different because of a quality. It's a different quality of, of righteousness. <clears throat> and then lastly, we looked at It's different because it endures. It has a perseverance all its own. It can't be changed. See, what sinners need in their life, but they do not have, the good news is, beloved, that God has provided that. He's provided it through the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, I want us to look at seven aspects here of the righteousness of God. Seven aspects. And some of these are almost kind of reviews, so we'll just go over those. But we'll work through these, and hopefully this will all prepare our hearts for our communion time. The first one here, the first aspect of God's divine righteousness is found in verse 21. It says, but now, I love the buts in Scripture. And this is a great one. But now, even though you're steeped in your sin and and there's nothing you can do about it, but now it says the righteousness of who? God. It's from God. It's apart from the law. It has been made manifest. It has been made known. Those two little words... One commentator calls them, uh, this is one of the biggest buts in Scripture. <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. It really is. What is God's answer to the depravity, the total depravity of the human race? Does he turn his back and just damn us to hell? No, he doesn't. And so we want to thank God for those two words, but now. They guarantee that God has an answer for the worst, the absolute worst that man could ever do. He provides an answer. His grace is greater than our sin. Isn't that amazing? It's just incredible. His mercy is infinitely more than our iniquity could ever measure up to be. Martin Luther once said that you should never introduce God into a plot unless the plot is so tangled and messed up that only God can straighten it out. See, that's the state of our human situation. It's so messed up, it's so tangled up by sin that only God can make it straight. Only God can make it right. Why do we need a righteousness from God? Because we don't have our own. We don't have a righteousness of our own. Simply put. Reminded of the the hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply what? To the cross I cling. That's all we have. But what about the good works that we do? We all do good works. The Bible says... They're basically filthy rags in his sight. They're done outside of Christ. See, we can't work our way to heaven. This righteousness is not something that you can work for. This righteousness is not something you can buy. It comes from one place and one place only. It comes from God. And see, that's, that's hard news sometimes for people to hear because people are always trying to clean themselves up. They're always trying to do the best thing thinking that somehow they have some goodness in themselves that God will accept them based on their goodness. If you don't believe me, just go downtown today and start asking people, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? And you'll be surprised at the answer. You probably won't be surprised at the answer. Most people say, yeah, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, yeah, I think so. That's wrong. That's wrong thinking. Goodness isn't inherited. <laughs> You got that? We don't inherit goodness. It's not like the blue eyes you have or or the skin you have or the brown hair or the lack of hair or whatever. Okay? None of that, all that stuff is inherited. But righteousness cannot be inherited. What you inherited from your parents is a sin nature, is what you inherited, if you really want to know. And what that sin nature does is it causes you to turn away from God from the very start. You were born with a tendency to disobedience. We all were. No one has to teach a little child to say no. No one has to teach a little baby to say mine. <laughs> you don't have to do that. They just, they just do it because they're little sinners. That's why, you know, those cute little babies. Yeah, they're little sinners. That's hard for us to understand because they are so loving and so cute. But when they grow up a little older, you start to see that sinfulness come out in all kinds of ways. We weren't born righteous. And no amount of of moral change or, or reformation can change that fact. You can clean up the outside all you want. But the Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. So there's no righteousness within you. And the only kind of righteousness that will save you is a righteousness that comes from outside yourself. And that comes from God. And that's what Paul says here. That's what's been revealed. He didn't keep it hidden. He showed it to us. That's where the good news begins. The righteousness we need comes down from God himself. Secondly... God's righteousness is apart from the law. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or shown, and it's been shown to us apart from the law. Now, to the Jews of Paul's day, those words would have blown their mind. They would have said, wait a minute, how can it be apart from the law? They had it all wrong. Because to the observant Jew, this would be a a shocking, if not troubling, statement at best. And many of the Jews and people who were religious in Paul's day really believed that somehow their religion, their religious devotion, would win God's approval. You know, that's no different than us today. That's no different. Sometimes I talk to Christians and I hear it. I hear it come right out of their mouth. They come in on a Sunday morning. and They look like they got run over by a truck or something. And they're saying, yeah, I'm here. Hope God does something. I showed up. Hope it's not like next last week. Because I wasn't here last week. And boy, what happened during the week was just horrific. And so I'm here this week. And see, in their mind, they're thinking, well, if they come and they sit in a chair and listen to someone talk about God and sing some songs and maybe throw something in a little basket when it goes by and smile and be nice, that somehow God is looking down and saying, oh, that's what I want you to do. No, we're not saved by our works. God isn't looking down saying, oh, you're in church today. Well, you get 10 extra points for going to church. See, that's how we think. That's how we think. And we also think the opposite. I mean, there's been some people, man, they, they've come to church. And they they walk through the doors back there. Hey, how you doing? Hey, I've been sick all week. And all this. Here, brother. Oh, then stay away from me, man. You're sick. You should be home in bed. You don't need to be here in church getting everybody else sick. What are you thinking? Oh, I'll never miss a Sunday. Why? Because in their mind, they think if they miss a Sunday, somehow God is going to Take some points away. (laughs) That's what they think. No, it's apart from the law, beloved. This righteousness comes apart from the law. See, the Jews of Paul's day, and even today, they they hope that following the Ten Commandments or the rabbinical law, the ordinances, hopefully offering these sacrifices that they were mandated to offer, tending to the, the moral teachings of the Torah, that God would be satisfied and somehow he, was for, he would forgive their sins based on their performance. Paul says, you know what? I hate to break the news to you, but it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. Well, does this mean then the law is just no good? Do we just throw it out? Is that what you're saying? No. That's not what the Bible says. See, the law, it says, revealed the righteousness of God. In other words, it showed us God's standard for human behavior. That's what it did. That's all the law could do. The law could just say, look, here's God's standard. This is his standard, this is his law. What's the purpose of the law? We saw that in verse 20. Look at verse 20. For for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. He says it right there. Since through the law comes what? What's it say? The knowledge of sin. What's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to reveal sin. To reveal wrongdoing. But it doesn't have... The power somehow to cleanse us and forgive us. That's not how it works. Look at Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. It says there, Paul, once again, is the author, and he writes, and he says, Now it is evident that no one, no one is justified before God by the what? What's it say? By the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Or Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing, it's not of works, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Or Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Incredible part of scripture where Paul is kind of recounting everything that he's gone through and all the... The credits that he has. And he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And he says, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here it comes. Not having a righteousness of my own. This is Paul saying this. That comes from where? That comes from the law. That's what he says. I don't have a righteousness on my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through what? Faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. He points it out. Or Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. He writes there, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. That's great. That's glorious. How did it happen, Paul? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through... Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I don't know about you, but I am so glad that God saved me by his grace and not by my works. I mean, even if I had lots of good works, eventually I'd know that somehow I'd mess up. Eventually, I'd let my armor down. Eventually... I'd end up sinning because we're all human beings. It's times like that that God says, hey, you know what? I saved you by, your, by my grace, not by your works. So when you mess up, when you sin, you know, there's you know, it's not an excuse for sin. Sin is wrong. We're not saying, oh, we're saved by God's grace, so go do whatever you want. No. But the reality of the matter is, beloved, we're in a fleshly body. We're in a fleshly world. We're going to sin until we receive our glorified bodies and we're with him. And so when we sin, that's why the Bible can say if we sin or when we sin, since we sin, that we can confess those sins to him. You know, I don't know about you, but when I was little and I got in trouble, one of the hardest things to do was to go on my own initiative and tell my brother, or my sister-in-law, that I did something wrong. Why? Why was that hard for me to do that? Because I knew that once I confessed, I was going to be in trouble. (laughs) Once I confessed, then, you know, something was going to get taken away or something was going to happen and it wasn't going to be good. So I'd hold on to that information until I was found out. Then after I found out, then I'd confess. Stevie, did you eat those cookies that were on the counter? Uh, (laughs) What cookies? You know, you start the delay process thinking, should I lie? Should I not? And you start, you know, whenever you have somebody, even in law enforcement, when you ask somebody a question and they ask you a question back, you know there's something not lining up right, okay? And that's the way it works. And so we need to be understanding of the fact that when we get in trouble, when we sin as Christians, we can boldly go to God and say, God, I blew it. And God's not up there with a big hammer going, yeah, you did. Well, too bad. I've had it with you. Boom. You're out of here. No. Why? Because of his grace. Because this righteousness that he gives us is not of our own. It's not our own righteousness. It's apart from our performance. It's so important that we remember that our, when Jesus died, and this kind of ties in with our communion, when Jesus died on the cross, he took our sin upon himself. See, we don't believe that Jesus just died a general death for everybody. He died for you. He died for me. He died for all those who would put their faith and trust in Christ. He took our sin upon himself and he paid for it. Our sin, the Bible says, was put on him. It was imputed to him. He took it on himself. It says he became sin for us. When we open our heart and we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, his righteousness, his Right standing before God is given to us. It's imputed to us because he took our sin. We can receive his righteousness. That's the transaction that takes place. See, when Paul says that righteousness comes apart from the law, what he's really saying is that it comes apart from religious observance. It comes apart from good works. It comes apart from baptism. It comes apart from giving money. It comes apart from devoted prayer life. It comes apart from any kind of ritual that you might be plugged into. And not that those things are bad. They should be part of a believer's life. But what he's saying is that the righteousness that comes from God comes to those who haven't even kept the law at all. That we've all sinned. Because that's in our nature. So law-keeping isn't a requirement for salvation. But the good news is those who have broken the law can be saved by God's grace. I mean, think with me for a second if American Express offered $5 million to anyone who can swim from Pier 39 to Hawaii. So you had on the appointed day, you had six carefully screened swimmers. They all line up down there on the pier, crack of a gun. They plunge into the surf. And after a few moments, pretty much they're out of sight. They're headed out through the Golden Gate. Six hours into the race, the first contestant quits. Cramps in his side, can't go on. Four hours later, a second swimmer stops because just they're exhausted. The other four redouble their efforts, thinking, I'm going to get this money. Twelve hours pass, then 15, then 18. At the 20-hour mark, three three others finally give up. They're just exhausted. They can't continue. One determined man swims on. But as we know, eventually, he too must quit. But only after an amazing 48 hours in the water. Now, would he win the money? No. Because he didn't swim to Hawaii. See, the prize was not offered to the one who swam the furthest. The prize wasn't offered to the one who could swim the longest. The prize was offered to the one who could walk up on the beach of Honolulu and say, Hey, I'm here. Swam from Pier 39. San Francisco. And since no one made it, no one wins the prize. Even though they tried valiantly. Some did better than others. But they all ultimately failed. It's the same way, beloved, when it comes to keeping the law of God. Some do better than others. We all know people that are, man, they got everything I... I-dotted, T-crossed, it looks like everything's great. But ultimately, everybody fails. We all fail God's standard because no one has ever kept the law perfectly except one person, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And God demands that kind of perfection. That's the kind of perfection you need. No one can be saved by keeping the law. That's why he says the righteousness we need comes apart from the law righteousness came by keeping the law, no one would ever be saved. Third thing, God's righteousness, not as only from God and as apart from the law, but it's also, verse 22, it says it's received by faith. It's received by faith. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. See, this point is, is crucial because almost everybody trusts in something. Maybe it's just yourself you trust in, but you trust in something. I've heard a lot of people over the years say, oh, I trust in God. I trust in God. But see, salvation depends on more than just this vague, quasi-religious confidence in the man upstairs. That kind of faith saves no one, beloved. In fact, it's not even it's not faith in God that saves us. Do you understand that? The kind of faith is too general. James chapter 2 verse 19 it says the demons what? They believe. <laughs> they tremble. Are they saved? No. Don't ever allow your faith to become some generic Sweet, mushy, nonspecific faith. In God's eyes, the only faith that saves is a faith that is directed at His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His work on the cross. It is faith which saves, not faith mixed with human works. It's faith in Jesus Christ which saves. It's not just faith in God. How many times have you asked somebody, are you a believer, are you a Christian? Oh, I believe in God. (laughs) Well, I didn't ask you that. See, God is, is specific about what he wants. He doesn't leave any vagueness there. There's no gray area. He will accept no substitutes. Why shouldn't he be specific? After all, he sent his own son to die on the cross for us. It shouldn't surprise us that he will only accept nothing less than a faith that is focused entirely on Jesus Christ. God's righteousness is received only by faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth thing, God's righteousness is for sinners. It's only for sinners. If you're not a sinner, you don't need the righteousness of God. You don't need it. Unfortunately, the Bible says in verse 23, there's no distinction for all have sin. We know that verse. Memorize that verse. So many times I have People ask me the question, well, who's all? <laughs> it's like, okay, you know, right here, we, we kind of jumped into the absurd here. You know, we, we don't need to do word studies on the word all. I recall a president some years back asking, depends what the word is, is. Remember that? How absurd is that? For all have sinned. That means everybody. That means you, I, the Pope, everybody. Everybody in the whole world has sinned. And they all fall short of the glory of God. They all fall short. There's no difference. I mean, think about that for a minute. No difference between a harlot and a debutante. They're both sinners. No difference between a serial killer and a social worker. No difference between... The profane and the priest, no difference between the cruel and the kind, no difference between the cheater and the law abider. I mean, you wonder, it doesn't he get any points here for this? It says there's no difference. How can there be no difference? The answer is that when it comes to needing salvation, there is no difference between people. All are sinners, all need to be saved. Everybody in the pool is drowning we all need a lifeguard there's no difference between the morally bankrupt and the morally upright both are lost both are separated from god i mean maybe you look at at, at harlots and murderers at the bottom that's fine maybe you think you're on the top of your moral game and you're on the top of mount everest that's fine But as high as you are, you're still not going to touch the stars. Relative location makes no difference at all. If you can't do it, you can't do it. Some may be high, some may be low, but nobody's going to touch the stars. That's what no difference means. Put it another way, it doesn't matter whether you're a student, you have a Ph.D., you're a college graduate or a housewife, an Eagle Scout, a man of means... Or a woman of wealth, a good citizen. It doesn't matter. You're still a sinner in God's eyes. The Scales have been weighed and we've been found wanting. He says that we're all sinners and we all, look at what it says, fall short of the glory of God. What precisely is the glory of God? In a theological sense, the glory of God is the perfection of all his attributes. But where do we see his attributes clearly displayed? We see them in the person of his son. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. The Lord Jesus Christ calls Jesus the radiance of his glory. Hebrews 1.3, the radiance of his glory. So all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, you could say, in Jesus Christ. We all fall short you ever sat down and compared your life to Jesus Christ? (laughs) you ever done that? Consider him. I mean, he only lived 33 years. It's not going to be that hard. Oh, he never committed a sin, by the way. He never thought an evil thought. He never said an evil word. He never committed even one evil deed. He never cheated. He never lied. He never procrastinated. He never got bitter. He never lost his temper in a sinful way. He never lusted never sought an easy way out of a hard situation, never bent the truth to make himself look good. He never cursed. He never turned his back on his friends. On top of that, he lived a life of perfect holiness, perfect purity, perfect kindness, perfect truth, perfect goodness, and perfect love. He was in every way the one perfect person that ever lived on earth. How do you stack up to (laughs) him? Most of us consider our sinfulness, and we tend to measure ourselves against somebody else. I did that before I was a Christian. I measured myself against my brothers who were pretty bad people before they came to Christ. <laughs> they did some bad things. I'd look at them and say, I don't do those bad things. man. Yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm the baby of the family. It took me a while to understand that the Bible says all have sinned. The answer is clear. We don't need to look good next to somebody else. Everybody's a sinner when we we are compared to Christ. Fifthly, God's righteousness is based on the grace of God. Verse 24 tells us this, that we are justified... By his grace as a gift. We are justified by his grace freely, some translations say, by his grace. We are justified freely by his grace. Freely basically means without a cause. Salvation comes without a cause in us. God saves us despite the fact that he can't find a reason within us to save us. See, it's not like God looked down on earth and said, ah, okay, this guy does that, and oh, there's, yeah, I see some goodness. No, we're all sinners in God's eyes. That's why when we are saved, the only thing we can do is fall to our knees and say, praise the Lord. Praise be to God. Sometimes people ask me, well, you know, if if you believe that God, in, in God's salvation, and you believe that it's something that He does, it's the divine work of God. The Bible says that he chose us in himself before the foundation of the world. You start thinking of election. You start thinking of some of these theologically hard things. And people begin to ask the question, well, why, why would God save me and not my neighbor? And my answer is always the same. I don't know. I don't have a clue. How do you know he's not going to save your neighbor? You don't know. But it's based on the grace of God. It's not based on human merit, moral morality. When God saves us, he saves us in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. That's what grace is all about. Grace is something that we need that we don't deserve. And God declares us righteous when we have nothing but the sewage of sin in us. That's the doctrine of grace. God saves people who don't deserve it. God saves people who actually deserve to be condemned to hell forever. That's why we call it salvation. They're being saved from something that's horrific. God saves people in spite of themselves. And contrary to the record. It's pure, abounding, astounding grace. Danny gave a great message on, on grace a couple months ago. <clears throat> encourage you to get it and listen to it. It's on the web. Well, this righteousness is also provided by the death of Christ. And this brings us to our communion time. Because we come right down to the heart of the gospel here, beloved. Verse 24, it says, And we are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus in order to make himself clear paul uses here three words and these words are really key to understanding the gospel they're they're key to understanding even what we're doing here at the communion table this morning says that we've been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus, and God present him as a propitiation or a sacrifice of atonement through the faith in his blood. Each word presents another kind of layer or facet of christs saving work on the cross. Look at the first one with me, justify The word comes from the courtrooms of, 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 of the ancient Greek. Law. To justify means to declare not guilty. To declare not guilty. More than that, it means to wipe away the record of sin and declare a sinner righteous in God's eyes. It's what happens when God alters our permanent record in heaven. When a sinner trusts in Christ as his Savior, as his Lord Jesus, declares him righteous, And you know what? That declaration can't change. It's even more binding than a a courtroom when you go before a judge and the judge says not guilty and that's it. Declared not guilty. Second word he uses is redeem. The word comes from the slave market. It, It means to set free by a payment of a price. The Bible calls us slaves to sin. And God had to pay the price to set us free from our slavery. And that price was the blood of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When a sinner trusts in Christ as his Lord and Savior, God releases him from the chains of sin and sets him free forever. What a glorious thing. We're purchased, we're we're bought by God From the slave market of sin. And the last word is propitiation or propitiate. It literally has the the meaning of a phrase that's translated in some texts. The sacrifice of atonement. It comes from the the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. It actually means to turn away wrath by the offering of a gift. In order to satisfy. Satisfy. Remember, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in the Day of Atonement, and he'd sprinkle blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And by sprinkling that blood, the sins of the people were covered, they were atoned for. And as believers, the wrath of God against us and against sin has been turned away. Why is this important? It's important because... God's justice demands death as the ultimate punishment for sin. And what he's saying is he's calling the death of Christ a propitiation, which means that that God's wounded heart is now satisfied with the death of his son. Same word is used over in 1 John chapter 2. So when a sinner trusts in Christ, God accepts him on the basis of that bloody sacrifice that Christ made as he died on the cross. Nothing in and of yourself. Justify, redeem, propitiate. The last thing here, the righteousness of God is a demonstration of God's justice. He says in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, the, this passage reveals that, that God's salvation plan began, began long before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The paradox in in salvation is this. God is a God of love, and therefore he wants to forgive sinners. But God is also a God of holiness. Who must not, he cannot overlook sin. So how could God love sinners and yet not overlook their sinfulness? How could God be true to himself by forgiving sinners, but not overlooking the sin they committed? Incredible answer he comes up with. God sent his own son to die for sinners. In that way, the just punishment for sin was fully met in the death of Christ because he was a perfect sacrifice. And the sinners who trust in Christ could be forgiven freely. So Paul says, God is both just in punishing sin through his Son and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. But it's amazing the power of Of Jesus' death. Even the sins of those who lived before Christ. Are forgiven by his death. When Jesus died. It reached all the way back to Adam. And Eve. took care of the sin. Not only that. But it takes care of the sins of those. Who would be living long after him. In the death of this one man. The God man. All the sins of human race are fully paid for past present and future and as a result those who believe in christ have their sins forgiven forever god is just he doesn't turn the other way to sin he doesn't overlook it god is a justifier of sinners and he declares righteous those who trust in jesus One theologian summarizes this passage this way. He says, To be justified means to be acquitted, to gain a right standing. Justification frees the guilty man from paying the just penalty for his sin. It declares that he is totally exonerated. All charges are dropped. And this acquittal is absolutely free because it's based on unmerited favor, which is grace. God decided to set us free. And to do so, he had to arrange a plan that could justify the guilty and still remain the moral being and then carry it out. It's hard to believe for a lot of people. I think, to be honest, most of us would rather prefer to work for our salvation. It makes us feel better. But God's gift of salvation costs us nothing even though it cost his son everything. Now, there's a cost in following Christ, dying to yourself daily, taking up the cross, following him. But salvation itself is taken by faith. It's yours, free. Christ says, I paid the price for you. Reminded of the hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this miraculous, incredible righteousness that you have provided for us through Christ. Lord, we thank you that you just didn't leave us to ourselves to try to see if maybe we could work this thing out somehow. And maybe coming to church a little more, or getting baptized, or giving a little more to charity, or helping the homeless, or reading the Bible more, or praying more, all those things are good things. Don't get me wrong. But not one of those things has any way of adding merit to our standing before you. It doesn't matter what religious background you come from here this morning. The fact is that all need to come and accept God's free gift of salvation. The only option you have is whether you're going to accept it or reject it. So I ask you this morning, what are you going to do with God's free offer of salvation? Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would just allow these words to speak truth into our hearts. Lord, if we prepare our, our hearts for our communion time together as the, the body of Christ, Lord, this communion table is open to, to all who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So we would ask if, if you're uncertain about your faith in Christ, that you would just pass the, the elements to the next person. And, um, but if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning, the Bible clearly says that before we partake of communion that we should examine ourselves. If there's anything in your heart, if there's anything that would hinder your walk with Christ at this moment, you need to just quietly confess it to him. Just as you sit there in this moment, just confess it. The Bible says that we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, if there's anyone here who has yet to put their faith their trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that this morning might be the day, that this might be the time. This might be the time that you're drawing them to yourself. That they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, there's no way out of this sin. Except through the work of Christ on the cross. Help my unbelief, Lord. Help me to understand the gospel of Christ. Thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.